and welcome to Opinionated Science. I'm Rory, a science writer at Technology Networks, and today we will be rounding up some of the biggest science stories of 2020. Now, we know what the biggest science story of the year is, but frankly, after 10 months of typing, uh, watching, reading, consuming various pieces of virus news, we just aren't going to talk about COVID in this podcast today. Isn't that refreshing? So uh, you can go elsewhere for your, I'm sure, innumerable numbers of COVID news roundups uh, that will emerge in the end of the year and into next year. But instead, we're going to highlight some of the other stories, no less significant, that may have been obscured by the mountainous amount of COVID science news in 2020. So uh, for that task, I'm joined by my colleagues Molly Campbell and Karen Stewart. How are you doing? Well, thank you, Rory. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Excellent. Looking forward to 2021. Uh, but <laughs> Aren't we yes, all? <laughs> we're getting all the, 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 the good news towards the end of the year. So uh, let's see what we can we can cast our minds back into the past and, and, and dredge up some other big stories from 2020. So um, I can kick us off and I'm going to be talking about a Neuralink, uh, which announced in the large media event um, back in August. Uh, its advances in brain um, implantation devices. So uh, for those who don't know, Neuralink is a brain engineering company, which is helmed by, um, I think now, world's second richest man, Elon Musk. And their flagship technology, which they call the Link, is a coin-sized device which is designed to be implanted into your skull to enable you to uh, monitor the electroactivity of your brain, stimulate areas of the brain, and achieve a whole lot more. So um, you might be thinking, well, brain implants aren't new, and that's very true, they're not, because we have used brain implants for some time for um, various medical procedures. So think, for example, um, some Parkinson's patients have benefited greatly from the use of deep brain stimulation electrodes implanted um, into their dopamine-producing areas of their brain. But it's pretty undeniable that Neuralink is the, the highest profile brain stimulation device ever unveiled and it is also one with the biggest set of promises attached so you know uh, often when one of these devices is announced by an academic lab you know the promises will say something like soon we will be able to apply for a grant so that we can put this device into five gerbils or something generally quite modest aims but uh, when Elon announced his Neuralink he said that soon we would be able to stop addiction, cure insomnia, repair brain damage and extreme pain, restore memory loss, reverse paralysis, just your average uh, Elon Musk uh, tweet or uh, video presentation kind of level of excitement and ambition. So um, before we get into whether or not those aims are manageable or achievable, let's uh, see how it works. So um, Musk and his team have developed what looks like something one of you know those futuristic robots they had in Wally. What was it? Was it called Eve or something? The sort of sleek white robots. Remember them? Um, he's got one of them, which is his brain surgery robot, which uh, he's saying at some point in the future will be able to chop into your skull, remove a small bit of it, and pop the neural link into it. He made it sound very simple and straightforward. I think he used the word installation 
in his press conference, which sounds a bit like something you'd get your Wi-Fi router put in during. Uh, but no, this is actual brain surgery. And uh, once this device is in, he's hoping that in the future, it will be able to you know, achieve all of these amazing medical aims, record, um, stimulate the brain. You know, he, he used a, a lot of ambitious terms, but the question is, will it work? And we should mention first that uh, it has received breakthrough device status from the US FDA. Now, what this means essentially is that the FDA are recognizing that the device has uh, a lot of potential and that it should be fast tracked for any potential um, regulation or interaction with the regulatory authorities. This isn't a guarantee it's going to work, however, and it's had a bit of a mixed response from the scientific community. So uh, there were a couple of things that Elon said in his presentation that maybe suggested he might be slightly underestimating the biological complexity of the human brain. Some choice quotes were, when you have a severed spinal cord, you essentially have broken wires. And also the neurons are like wiring and you need an electronic thing to solve an electronic problem. So, you know, these, these kind of statements kind of suggest that this tech billionaire is coming at really is a fundamentally problem from, a, from an engineering angle. And, uh, you know, I think some of the reaction from the neuroscientific community kind of betrayed that they might feel a little like he's riding into town and announcing he's going to fix all their problems and they feel a little bit offended by that. But at least some of the, the researchers that um, responded to this um, this innovation were, were pretty uh, pretty positive. So the University of Sheffield's Dr. Tenore Ramesh, for example, said that he was amazed um, by the progress of the chip. It has been more of a, a mixed response, I'd say. And, you know, you, you'll note that I'm mentioning this is one of the, the biggest advances of 2020. And if Musk hasn't actually solved anything yet and the device's net kind of uh, mixed response, you might be wondering why I've, I've picked it. Well, I think the telling quote I have is from Kevin Tracy, who's president of the Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research. And talking to Inverse, he said of the neurotechnology field that we need more hype right now. And this is something I, I totally agree with. So, you know, we have these um, brain stimulation devices already, but the field has really lacked this kind of uh, major level investment. And to kind of give you an idea of the numbers involved, one of the biggest neurotech companies around BlackRock, Microsystems, has an annual revenue of around $30 million. Now, Musk has already pumped himself $100 million into Neuralink. He's got $50 million more in external funding, and eventually he wants to have the company hold around 10,000 people, or that's about 80 or 90 times the size of BlackRock. So this is really the grandest statement that we've ever seen um, for the brain stimulation and implantation field. So um, on top of that, the, the technology itself, and from an engineering standpoint, it's, it's pretty cool. So if we look at just the, the capacity of this device to provide stimulation, um, these devices, to a T, all uh, work in terms of having electrodes which stimulate uh, areas of the brain. And one of the most popular ones used today is the UTA array, which has uh, 96 electrodes uh, on its surface. Well, uh, the link, by comparison, has 1,024 channels, um, which it packs into this 23 times 8 millimeter chip. So. You know, this kind of engineering advance is really huge. And, and that's what a lot of the researchers were reacting to it, saying, you know, this is really cool engineering technology. And whilst clearly there is a way more to be done on the, the biological side of things, you know, we barely understand the basis of memory, let alone how we could begin to rewrite memories or 
restore them if they're lost. But from an engineering standpoint, this seems to me to be a shot in the arm that your technology field really will benefit from in future years and we'll be following it into 2021. Wow. Do you have any questions about it, folks? I mean, I can't decide how I feel about this because my attitude towards kind of high tech neuroscience, I don't know if I'm just skeptical or if, you know, my experience in studying the field warrants this opinion, but I just sometimes feel like it gets a little bit ahead of itself in the sense that there's this talk of applying this sort of interface in, you know, repairing spinal cord injury, kind of retrieving memories. But like you said, we don't understand the biological basis of a lot of basically systems in the brain. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, Rory, but I feel like spinal cord injury in particular, there's still no sort of solid solution for patients. So how, I, I don't quite get how they're developing a technological system without having that underlying knowledge. Does that make sense? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean, Molly. I guess, you know, Elon is always going to talk a big game. And I think one of the primary reasons that he was talking such a big game, because this uh, August announcement was a recruitment drive for engineers and neuroscientists to to join Neuralink. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I see it as being a a goal that requires an approach from from two directions. So absolutely, the 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 real challenge I feel is um, to understand these neural systems. And you know, and for example, with spinal cord injuries, there's innumerable problems biologically in terms of the cells involved around the scars that are left when people have spinal cord injuries. That I can't really see how electronic advance is going to solve that. But clearly, there is needed to be these these advances in the technology from the other direction and you know the the more uh, heat and light that's created by big announcements like this hopefully it can stimulate more investment into the field which you know clearly is a limiting factor for a lot of academic labs is there's simply not enough funding to um what might seem like a bit of like a hail mary for for some of these these applications you know yeah. i mean he's making some really big claims with things he's saying it could potentially solve. But as you say, you, you've got to start somewhere, haven't you? Probably with like the brain stimulation for Parkinson's, for things like cochlear implants, when they were first thought about, I would imagine people probably scoffed at those so as well. So it's not until you try that you find out what the problems are um, and whether things are possible or not. So I guess, yeah, you've got to start somewhere. My question would be, with if you are able to try and develop this, is there the potential for it being misused as well as used responsibly? Well, yeah, this is this is another good point. I mean, um, you know, say what you will about Elon Musk, but take five minutes on his Twitter account and you can see that he's far more concerned with whether it can be done than whether it should be done, regardless of what era he's uh, he's advancing into. And yeah, with brain implants, you know, there's innumerable ethical questions about technology's interaction with our um, you know, our, our brains, our minds, our memories, you know, these are these are advances that really, I think, need to be publicised because neuroethicists and, uh, you know, people that need to, to come up with whether we need moratoriums in this kind of research, what we need to, to do in terms of ethical advancements, when we need to codify these kind of devices, you know, these are exactly the kind of things that can take way too long to, to codify and bring into place unless there's lots of 
um, attention brought to the advances. You know, I, I really do feel like we are some time off from anything like the link uh, being used to to alter our memories in any way. But you know, before the the CRISPR babies were born in China, I reckon that we were a long, a long way off from that. I mean, Molly, you're the genomics editor, so you can maybe comment further, but that kind of uh, very, very much surprised me. So, you know, these kind of ethical quandaries are ones that we really need to predict and, and get ahead of before they surprise us. 100%. I think <laughs> it's funny you compare it to kind of the CRISPR situation. I mean, I, I really hope that this sort of technology isn't used out of context prior to ethical approvals but it does it sounds like there are so many opportunities that lie with this and with anything kind of new in science as we've said we've mentioned CRISPR as an example there's always so many pros and so many cons against kind of both sides I'd be curious to hear from both of you so say hypothetically the opportunity arises you can have your memories saved on a computer, would you do it? Oh, that's a hard one. Hmm. Probably something's best forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, I don't think anyone yeah. needs to see those. <laughs> <laughs> we can we can stomp on that that hard drive and chuck it in the, the dumpster for all I care. But yes. Yeah. Speaking of um, genomic advances, Molly, I believe you were going to talk about some really interesting inheritance research that has been yes. studied yes. in the last year. Absolutely. So um, this is a field that I kind of wanted to talk about now because it has had some controversial sort of um, opinions in the past um, and I'm drawn to fields like that. <laughs> um, so I want to talk a little bit about some progress that's been made in a field known as transgenerational inheritance. Um, I don't know if it's a term that either of you are familiar with or that our listeners may or may not be familiar with. It basically is exploring whether biological memories can be inherited across generations. Now, that might sound a bit funky. Upon I think that's the plot of the video game Assassin's Creed, but um, <laughs> I'm going off on a tangent there, ignore me. <laughs> Um, I'm not a gamer, Rory, so I can't agree or dispute with you there, but <laughs> um, <laughs> so the the basic idea is kind of goes against what we know as being the law of inheritance. So, you know, your acquired traits that you experience through your life, let's say, for example, I am cooking some pasta. I did this last night. I'm cooking my pasta on the hob and I burn my arm. Now, that causes a change in my somatic cells, that's my skin cells. Those skin cells, they're burnt, they're probably going to form a scar due to my clumsiness. Now, when or if I had a child, that child would not be born presenting the scar of my clumsiness on its skin. That's because that change happened to my somatic cells and these changes, we believe, are not passed on through the germline. So, I'll give you a another example. There was a study that was conducted based on, you might have heard of it actually, it's quite famous. I may be mispronouncing the scientist's name, so I apologise for that, but his name was Lume and he did the Dutch Hunger Winter Family Study. And controversial to what I've just talked about, he found that the descendants of a Dutch population that survived the famine of 1944 to 1945, a very famous 
famine carried the molecular impact of their ancestors being starved. They all showed very similar molecular kind of makeups where they had sort of instances of um, high levels of LDL, which is a type of cholesterol, high rates of obesity, molecular changes in the brain. There was a higher instance of schizophrenia and diabetes, and this was common across this population. So despite the fact that this famine had ended a long time before these individuals were sort of born, the descendants carried some kind of scar in their biological makeup that was from their ancestors. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I find that pretty cool. So there's been loads of debate as to whether this can actually happen, whether our experiences in life can actually be passed on that are outside of the germline to our, uh, can't think of the word, descendants, there we go. So there are a couple of researchers in this field and the reason that I wanted to discuss it today is because this year there's been some really cool studies published in this area that kind of add further depth, further clarity on whether this is actually possible. So the first researcher I'm going to touch on is a gentleman known as Professor Oda Rekhavi, who is at Tel Aviv University. Um, I had the pleasure of speaking with him this year for a profile piece where I learned loads about his work. He is an extraordinarily fascinating researcher. I'd not to sort of float my own boat, but I'd encourage you to check out the profile piece purely because he's just such an interesting individual in science to learn more about. Anywho, I digress. But basically, Rekhavi's lab is essentially focusing on how these mechanisms of biological memory can potentially be passed on. And he uses a worm that he is very, very fond of and that many of you may be familiar with. And it's the C. elegance worm. Um, so in this area, what Rekhavi studies is something known as small RNA, which is a non-coding RNA molecule. And it regulates gene activity through various different mechanisms both in the nucleus and in the cytoplasm and in response to changes in the environmental stimuli. So in this area, the epigenetic inheritance theory kind of suggests that methods by which genes are turned on or turned off through this manner, through the action of small RNAs can be inherited. Now, Rakavi's done an awful lot of research in this space and has published some really interesting findings. For example, upon exposure to a virus, the worms actually developed a defense mechanism um, which silenced the viral genome. Um, and these, these molecules that are, are responsible for this are extragenetic. And somehow this kind of form of vaccination was passed on to the offspring of the worm. So that's just one example of his research in the past. And then this year, he published a paper where he basically identified that kind of across populations, there is a feedback mechanism in place where it shuts down this method of molecular inheritance after a certain number of generations. Um, and the feedback mechanism is RNA based. So this lab, Rekhavi's lab, is kind of work, working on characterising all these different molecular pathways that could be involved. But that was just kind of one example of really interesting research in this field. And quickly, because I don't want to take up too much of the podcast focus on one area. Um, I also had the pleasure of speaking with, and again, apologies if I mispronounced the name here, but Professor Isabel Mansui, who is a professor in neuroepigenetics in the medical faculty at the University of Zurich. Um, and her lab essentially looked at 
transgenerational inheritance in the context of trauma. So essentially what the lab did was they looked, they induced a traumatic experience um, in a specific mouse model. And what they found that was that traumatic experience induced metabolic changes, so changes to the molecules that exist in our bloodstream. And in the descendants of this population, they found that this exact same kind of signature, call it, of the trauma and how the trauma had impacted the metabolism was inherited in the offspring. So the suggestion from this study is that these molecules behind this transgenerational uh, transgenerational inheritance there's some form of communication going on between kind of the circulating factors in the blood and the gametes which I just thought was very 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 cool and when I spoke to Professor Mansweet she kind of mentioned that the utility of this field of research is that looking at how experiences in childhood can alter mental and physical health later in life and you know, this could be considered a public health issue and it's something that we really need to understand mechanistically to, to help patients, doctors and society. It kind of merges lots of different areas of science um, from psychology to sort of impact of society and, and our environment on our health. So those are just two studies that I kind of wanted to highlight to our listeners. Um, we can include further examples in, in the show notes, but... Yeah, I just think this is such a fascinating field of research and these kind of milestones that have been made this year make me really enthusiastic to see where this field's going to go, basically. don't know if you guys have any sort of initial thoughts or questions about about this area. Well, just that it's, um, it's really cool research. I mean, this is such a you know basic tenet of biology that you have somatic cells that don't get hurt and sex cells that, that do you know it's, it's not one of the first things I've written in any genetics textbook so the fact that this is in at least in a small way being rewritten is is quite something um I'd love to see certainly more human level population studies you know I mean this Dutch famine research that you mentioned Molly it had been something that popped up before like I'm unfamiliar with it but it's one of the only examples I, I can think of but you know, whilst the 1944-45 famine was a horrific event, you know, we're, we're not short of those in humanity's recent history. You know, so many traumatic events have affected entire peoples, um, you know, over the last 70, 100 years. There must be way, way more of these potential studies to be done and, and characterised so we can have a better understanding of exactly how common this is in human populations. Absolutely. It's funny you mentioned that. So I failed to discuss the fact that uh, Professor Isabel Mansweet's study actually used um, a human cohort as well. So the signature that was identified in the mice with the raised levels of certain lipids and sort of reduced levels of other lipids was mirrored in a, a cohort of 25 children um, that were from a children's village in Pakistan who had lost their father and were separated from their mother. So that was classed as the traumatic experience. So, yeah, interesting that these findings of this sort of molecular signature of trauma were found in the mice, but were also found in a human population. Even more interesting to study when these children grow up and perhaps have children of their own, whether that signature is passed on. I think it just really highlights how little we still know in that area 
and as you say it would be really interesting to see if it gets passed to the next generation and then for how many generations something like that will persist as well does it fade over time if you don't reinforce it or yeah definitely it's kind of identifying new rules isn't it of inheritance yeah. which is such a, a you know key foundation of modern biology that to question it almost seems a little bit silly but here we are 2020 nothing <laughs> nothing's normal anymore <laughs> New uh, normals everywhere. Now, Karen, I, I know you're going to talk about another really important issue of, of microplastics in our in our environment. Do you want to, to start yeah, us off? Sure. Yeah, so it's something that's been getting more and more attention across both the mainstream media and also the scientific media. Um, so I'll give you a little bit of background first. Uh, so microplastics are classed as anything that's smaller than five millimetres, any, any kind of plastic. Um, if it's under one micrometre, that's a nanoplastic. And these primarily come from two different sources. So primary microplastics are ones that are made in micro format. So these might be clothes fibres, the beads that you get in toothpaste and face scrubs, that kind of thing, um, little plastic pellets that are used in uh, manufacturing sometimes, and then secondary microplastics, which are those that start off as bigger pieces, you know, like some packaging or something like that, and they're broken down over time, which might be because of UV light or if they get into the sea, you know, the grinding action of the, the sea. Um, now, we've had multiple news stories. Um, scientists are starting to look in more and more locations just to see how big this issue is. Um, so this year alone, we've had ones from the base, right from the base of the Mariana Trench up to the, the top of Everest. So they're cropping up everywhere, even where there aren't a lot of people. Um, and that's partly because they've shown they're being carried in the air that we breathe, uh, the, they're in snow, water, food and drink, uh, food for the food and drink primarily, um, they may, be in the actual the food and the drink they're being produced but also the, there's evidence that there's being transferred from the packaging itself so there's a study that came out recently indicating that when people prepare babies bottles um, that that heating process which you know sterilizes the bottle and keeps your baby safe from that perspective is actually releasing microplastics into the milk that you're then giving to your infant so it, it's cropping up everywhere and it's it's becoming apparent that it is a big issue uh, and primarily uh, where people are looking for these are in water and that's because it's a source where the microplastics can be easily ingested so this might either be directly by drinking the water itself um, or through eating so for example seafood or something which may have ingested it and then you ingest the seafood uh, so it gets passed along the food chain. Um, they've also been looking in different types of tissues so uh, a study around the UK coast, they sampled mammals uh, that have been washed up on the uh, on the beaches and they found microplastics in every single mammal they looked in. Um, it's also been found in human stools and another recent study uh, has looked in human tissues and they found microplastics in every single tissue that was studied in this particular study. Alarming stats out there. So for um, studies in the, the ocean, they've shown that in the Arctic ice, there are around 12,000 microplastic particles per litre of seawater, um, and there are a million times more abundant than previously thought. And another recent study has also estimated that if you weighed the microplastics that are in the Atlantic Ocean, it would weigh about 21 million tonnes, which I think you can all agree is a lot of plastic. 
Yeah. So what problem is this causing though? So in terms of sea creatures, it can cause physical harm. If you're a small, say a shrimp or something, and you ingest a microplastic, it may be big enough to block the guts up. Um, and if you're a fish, uh, it can damage the gills. But it's also having less obvious impacts as well, because where they're being washed up in sand and things and becoming a part of a part of beaches, they're changing the thermal properties of those beaches. So when turtles are laying their eggs in there, um, they're either too hot or too cold. So it's impacting on the, um, the incubation of the turtle eggs too. And they're also causing chemical harm. Uh, so for some, it's causing altered growth. Uh, it's um, impacting on the endocrine system. So it's affecting reproduction. Um, and also in mussels, they've shown that they are actually causing some genetic changes. However, the really big question is that most people think about is what impact does this, does this impact us? Um, and that's very much a hot topic of research. So from what they're seeing in animals, it has the potential to cause you know, endocrine disruption and what have you. I mean, it's not, for us, a microplastic is not going to be big enough to block our guts and we don't have gills. But there are other, especially with the, the chemical harm side of things, that we don't necessarily know at this point in time. So it's very much a, an up and coming area of research. In terms of actually identifying microplastics in the environment, there are a number of different approaches that have been taken. Initially, microscopy was used. However, it's not that reliable. And there were, it's shown that quite a lot of the things that are identified as being microplastics were other materials. Uh, they also tried staining, but some of the materials don't stain that well. Um, so most of the techniques that are being used now are spectroscopy based. So this would be uh, for a transfer, transform infrared imaging um, and Raman based analysis as well. So both of these have the advantage of being non-destructive um, and they allow the type of plastic to be identified and also interrogate it in terms of shape and form and things. So it, it gives a good picture without destroying your sample. So you've still got something to use at the end of it. Now, related to this, I had the pleasure earlier in the year of talking to two ladies from um, a project called Expedition. So this is a not-for-profit organisation founded in 2014. Um, and they ran all female sailing expeditions uh, to investigate the cause and solutions of plastic pollution. So I spoke with Emily Penn, who's the co-founder and mission director, and Dr. Um, Winnie Courtin-Jones, who's the science lead and also um, at the University of Plymouth. So what the project uh, is aiming to do is, um, on this particular one, they're sailing around the world. Uh, they have sets of uh, Women, they don't necessarily have a background in sailing. They come from all sorts of different different disciplines, um, but they all bring different things to the project. So you might have someone who's a filmmaker or someone else who's an engineer. And so by coming together and helping to gather samples, they uh, visit the local areas where, um, they, where they uh, stop in port. So they're educating people as well, seeing where the so potential sources of uh, plastic pollution are coming from. Um, and because of their diverse skill set, they bring very different things to the to the party. So if you're a filmmaker, you might help to educate more people about reducing pollution. If you're an engineer, you might be able to come up with a better solution for, I don't know, recycling plastic. If you're a chemist, there might be a way of making better plastics or uh, more efficiently biodegradable plastics, for example. So they all bring something different to the party and they're using this citizen science as a way of gathering a really useful data set to get a global picture 
of uh, how microplastics are not only distributed around the globe, but also looking at trying to identify the root sources as well. So are they coming from landfill? Are they coming from particular industry as well? So trying to tackle the problem at the root cause. So that's kind of a summary of um, the projects I was looking at. I, I have some thoughts. Firstly, it's just quite grim, isn't it? The idea that we're like living, breathing, bathing in plastic. Yeah. Just gross. And I think it's really timely that you've kind of brought this up because obviously it was Black Friday last week. I don't know if any of you guys saw, but there were loads and loads of people on social media that were calling out these fast fashion brands, which is obviously a really topical conversation at the minute. Um, and I just had a quick glance because I remember I heard you say that obviously clothes contribute to the microplastics. Yeah, and a stat I found says that 35% of microplastics in the oceans come from clothing. And I just think, for example, in, in these Black Friday sales, there were brands that were selling clothes for kind of like, I think the lowest that I saw was like 62p for a dress. Wow. And I just think this must be contributing so so much mm -hmm. to this issue and how is this being tackled if sort of brands are allowed to do this it just kind of boggles the mind a little bit doesn't it yeah very much so also there's such a throwaway society with you say about black friday but a lot of people are buying you know, bits of new technology and things and you chuck out the old one mm. um, and things just aren't repairable anymore so there there are there's more and more plastic entering our landfill and yeah yeah, I mean, my first thought was kind of, yikes, um, <laughs> having had a year of fairly apocalyptic news, this sounds pretty bad too. Uh, sorry, everyone. Um, like, but, do you uh, another one? Is, the, yeah, is Karen, are there, are there recognised techniques that the researchers have come up with to, to dredge these microplastics, like once they're in the environment, are there ways to reliably get them out? It's difficult. It is really difficult. So when wastewater, the, the primary uh, contributors to microplastic pollution in seas um, is treated effluent and runoff. So when effluent goes through um, the processing, it will remove large pieces of plastic, but mostly the microplastics are too small and they'll just go through. Um, and also runoff. So you think um, think of a road, for example, and you're all driving your cars around and there's tiny little particles of rubber being generated which then you know, it rains and that gets washed into a ditch which gets washed into a river so the, the problem is because, because they're so small once they're there it's quite difficult to take them out again yeah well you know, i think it's a it's, it's a good reminder that you know science has come together so much in 2020 and we've achieved these amazing unprecedented things but environmental challenges like microplastics are you know a clear sign that this kind of collaborative science and like the the, the citizen science project you've mentioned Karen you know these kind of things need to keep going they can't just stop because we've Absolutely. beaten the virus that shall not be named uh, <laughs> in this podcast at least uh, you know we, we need to keep these projects up it's so important. Absolutely and it's really good to see a team they're from uh, countries around the world uh, this particular one is their biggest project so far is involving 300 women from across the globe um, and unfortunately they they've been interrupted by the global event that shall not be named but they will they're going to be picking up their voyage again next year um, to continue around but it's good to see that people are 
uh, excuse me, raising awareness um, and trying to tackle the source of the problem. So with, with it being so difficult to remove plastics from the environment once they're there, you know, the, the common sense thing to do is, well, make sure they don't get there in the first place. Absolutely. Well, yeah, thanks so much for that overview, Karen. It's a really interesting area that I think we'll look forward to, to following more in, in 2021. Um, but I think that's pretty much all the time we have. I mean, we have only scratched the surface of some of the science needs that's happened in 2021. In particular, I know Molly recently published a piece about AlphaFold, which may have uh, solved one of the biggest problems in protein biology that's persisted for 50 years. So these kind of stories are the ones that are, are still coming out as, as the year draws to a close and we haven't been able to cover. But don't worry, we uh, have plenty of coverage over in Technology Networks and we'll be back with many opinionated science podcasts over the next year and into 2021. And, uh, you know, we might even have more podcasts about that virus thing that we've ignored today. It's been very refreshing not to talk about it, I have to say. Um, but yes, until then, I'm going to say bye bye from me. And uh, thank you, Molly. Thank you, Karen, for, for joining me today. Thank you very much. And Great. happy year to everybody. Yes, happy new year. It can't be worse than this one. Don't say it. But uh, yeah, and thanks, thanks to all our listeners for following us throughout 2020 and opinionated science and as always please share subscribe and do comment on our podcast don't keep your opinions to yourself bye for now <laughs>